Welcome back to the Naked Truth. Peace to you. We are in the book of Judges, chapter 6. If you want to read along with me, let's begin with verse 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. So again, the captivity or the struggles that the congregation, the children of Israel, as they're called in this part of the narrative, um, is being attributed to the fact that the people aren't being faithful to their religion. And in the case of this religion in this chapter, the um, Lord that's being referred to is Jehovah. But we've read in the previous couple of chapters that the people have started to follow other entities, deities, <clears throat> excuse me, gods as their Lord, uh, namely the Baals and the Ashtaroth and Asherah, Asherahs. And those are also historic um, deities for um, the Canaanite religions of that region of the world and probably beyond it. So it lets you know that they weren't faithful, the people weren't faithful to any one religion at all. And also that there's more than one entity being worshipped as the Lord throughout the Bible and more than one religion mentioned in the Bible and worshipped in the Bible. Even though people will try to pretend otherwise, that's just not the case. Um, so anyway, the people aren't being faithful to one religion and it's being um, called the reason for their troubles. Verse 2, And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites. The children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So Midian um, is an area, but they also have their own priests for their religion. We know that because, uh, at least according to the narratives, Moses married the daughter of the high priest of the, of that area of Midian. And um, his father-in-law was named Jethro in one place. And then his father-in-law, and either the same one or another one, has the name of Raul in another place. And I seem to recall recently we read that there was a third name given to Moses' father-in-law, but it, I know for sure there have been at least two um, father-in-laws, fathers-in-law for Moses. So we know he was married. And one other thing is the women he married were African women. Remember, Moses himself was a prince in Egypt, which is in Africa, before it was revealed to him that he was of the congregation of the children of Israel. Also, remember that the congregation were there in Africa for four centuries, more than 400 years. Um, so it's almost certain that um, everyone was not, that most people were dark skinned. Whether, um, you know, whether your church religion tells you that or not, or and no matter what the popular idea of the congregation is in modern times, they were in Africa for 400 years, and it's even called a mixed multitude when they went through the Exodus uh, saga, that narrative. So we know all the people in there were most likely dark-skinned, but at the very least, mixed. Um, and again, you can see that happen in America in 400 years of um, the 400 years that black people were kidnapped from Africa and brought to America. In those 400 years, there's been lots of mixing. Um, a whole lot of it involuntarily through the different rapes and um, assaults that took place during the slavery era, but also in modern times where it's voluntarily uh, mixing of the different races. Because at the at the end of the day, race is just a human concept that people cooked up to separate people from each other. 
it's not actually anything um, scientifically a biological thing. Instead, it's just more a sociological thing and a political thing. Uh, verse three. So it was whenever Israel had, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up. Also, Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. So they're saying every time that the congregation of the children of Israel would sow something in their fields, for instance, whenever they did, they would have um, opposing armies go against them. And let's see what they do. I'm guessing they'd raid their crops. But let's see verse four. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. So it seems whenever they would sow their lands, they would seed, um, the neighboring people would go up against them and attack them and destroy not only their crops, but also their livestock. Um, remember, the people who were going up against were the people who were there before them. So it, it'd be just like if someone were to um, move into your house and start bullying you and uprooting your orange trees, your peach trees, and planting whatever it is they wanted instead. You would hardly be expected to take that with a smile. So it's similar to what's happened here. The people are, of the area have been colonized by foreigners. And it just so happens that foreigners are the congregation of the children of Israel. But it's still colonization. It's still massacring the people who were lived there. And it's still stealing their land. Verse 5. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number. And they would enter the land to destroy it. So just like I was saying, if someone were to bully their way onto your property and just start living there, you'd hardly be expected to be happy about it. So they're doing that to them in a mass scale. Whenever they see they plant crops, they just go there with all of their own livestock and destroy it and move on into the area. move Occupy the area that the congregation has taken up and occupied. Verse 6, So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. The children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So again, the Midianites are actually sort of cousins. They're relatives of the children of Israel, at the very least through Moses and his um, marital connections there. But almost certainly through other means also, because I doubt he was the only one intermarrying with the people around him. We know he wasn't because there was the whole Cosby incident and um, that was described in detail where at least one of the other uh, descendants of Israel, Israel the person, Jacob, um, intermarried with them, some of the people around them and it turned out, it turned into an ugly incident. So we know intermarrying was something people did way back then just like they do now. Verse 7, And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, so the people would find their faithfulness when they get oppressed and then turn back to seeking the Lord in their oppression. Verse 8, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. So the people, are, whenever they uh, revert um, to their um, falling away from the religion, embracing other religions, and then get oppressed and uh, connect the two as one being the result of the other, then they would turn back to their religion 
and the deity, the entity that they credited with their exodus. And then they'd find new judges and leaders of them and they'd get brought back again to uh, remember who it was that delivered them uh, from their enslavement in Egypt. And that's what's happening in verse 8. That they're being reminded that they um, were rescued from their uh, enslavement, from slavery in Egypt. Verse 9, And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you, and gave you their land. So, that's sort of true, sort of accurate. They were absolutely delivered from their enslavement uh, in Egypt. They That's what the whole exodus, the book and the narrative was about. The people being rescued from slavery in Africa and making their way to the gates of the promised land. But that's not the whole truth of it because the part about drove them out before you, that's sort of true. Uh, they were told, uh, they decided which areas of the so-called promised land that they wanted for themselves, coveted it, and then um, were told to go in and take it um, by force, massacring the people who lived there, um, taking some of the women captive and the ones they found attractive and raping them after an appropriate time, 30 days if I remember right. Um, that was what their orders were in entering the land that's already occupied by other people. Only it didn't work out that way. They were told the Lord would drive them out from before them. But that's not how it ended up happening. They ended up having to battle in war after war after war with the different people who lived there. And sometimes they prevailed and sometimes they didn't. So it's not exactly correct to say that um, they were driven out from before them because some of them weren't. Some of them are still there, um, even to that point, giving them problems then. Um, verse 10, also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So it's very clear there that the Amorites are another nation of people who were in that land before them, and they're dwelling in their land. It's very clear there in verse 10. So they've gone into other people's land and taken it for themselves, or attempting to take it for themselves, but those people aren't having it. They're putting up a fight to keep their property. And um, in the same way the Native Americans, the indigenous people, put up a fight again and again and again uh, to try and save the lands that were theirs before the colonizers came to America and forcibly took it through massacres and bad treaties and all sorts of other wickedness, including slavery. Um, it's the same thing. The people weren't willing to just let them move in and take it. It was taken by force. Similarly, they've um, in this in verse ten, they're being reminded they're in someone else's land, but they're going there to take it by force, and they're dwelling in it, and they're not also not being faithful to the religion that took them that far. Verse eleven. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Orpha, Ophra, excuse me, which belonged to Joash the Abysrite while the son of Gideon threshed wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. So there's a lot said there. Now it's saying the angel of the Lord. Um, an angel is capitalized to make it seem like it's talking about um, the Lord God Almighty, God self. Um, only angel is, an angel here is being translated from the word Malak, 
if I, and as always, forgive me if I mispronounce any of these. And Lord is still being pronounced, I'm sorry, being translated from the name Jehovah. So it seems that it's saying the angel of Jehovah um, is physically there among the people. But Lord is capitalized as if it's talking about God Almighty has appeared there to them. Either way, they're having a supernatural incident where um, an angel uh, is appearing to them physically and even sitting under a tree. And um, and in the part about Gideon, that's who the next sort of hero of the, the narrative is arising. That's his name. Um, it says he's threshing wheat, so he's tending to his crops. Uh, threshing wheat basically is when you separate the wheat from the chaff, the stuff you can save and eat from the stuff that you can throw away and probably burn. Um, and they're doing it in the wine press. So the wine press is large. That's where you would gather all your grapes to stomp and process them to get the juice out of them so that then you can ferment them and make wine. That's what, um, but they're doing their wheat inside the wine press, not just the wine. Uh, to hide it from the other people whose land they dwell in. Because remember, like we just read, once people see they have a crop, they go in and destroy it. Verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. So, this is one of the um, instances and in the beginning of um, instances where a person is being um, accredited with having valor, super strength, almost like Goliath, not Goliath, um, Samson, um, to sort of lead the people into victories uh, during their war times. And Gideon is one of the first of those. And so he's being um, sort of patted on the back by the angel of the Lord. And now the mission part starts, verse 13. Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of, out up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken and delivered into the hands of the Midianites. So Gideon is asking the same thing a lot of Christians ask in modern times. A lot of, um, even not beyond Christians, a lot of people who uh, consider themselves God-fearing or at least believe in God ask all the time. It's like, well, if there's a God, if there's a Lord then what's up with all the problems and trouble people keep running into? Why, if the Lord is present and attentive, do these do things like that happen? And They're not alone. I've asked that myself. Um, and one other thing to notice in this verse, Lord, uh, with the capital letter L and the rest in lowercase, it's translated from the word Adon, just like Adonai, um, but the word Lord with all capitals is translated from the name Jehovah. But both of them are capitalized. So um, one more instance of how um, the name or word Lord can be translated from different things. And it's not consistent at all, uh, especially in the Old Testament. Um, this is just another example of it. I'm only aware of that because otherwise I wouldn't know it other than seeing that one is in all caps and the other is um, just begins with caps and then otherwise not capitalized. I'm using the blueletterbible.org website 
that um, I've consistently used and told you about before. And you can use its tools and see for yourself what these different names and words are translated from so that you can see what I'm talking about just in case you don't have some other reference of your own. So anyway, Gideon is wondering, well, if the Lord is with us, what's up with all the trouble they keep running into? Um, and how about all those grand stories we heard about as far as the Exodus goes with the different parting of the seas and um, d inflicting plagues on people to get you to set them free? What's up with all that? Where is all that? Was all that just fairy tales? Verse 14. Because remember, this is another generation that's arisen that didn't experience any of those different um, events as far as their, the narrative goes of the miracles the people um, experienced during the Exodus. So they don't know firsthand um, that those things truly happened. They just heard it passed down. Verse 14. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So now rather than answering um, um, Gideon with trying to explain that the Lord is still with them and that those things did happen and any of that, instead just in sending Gideon on a mission saying that uh, just go ahead and fight the battles and the Lord is with him. Verse 15, so he said to him, Oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So Gideon's looking at physical things and saying, um, he's not a family, he's not from a family that's so numerous that they have a great army. And even among his own family members, he's not like Popeye or the Hulk or something. He's uh, weak and small. So how is it that he's being given the mission to go in and rescue all the people? Verse 16, And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. So he's um, he's being reassured that uh, the Lord's going to be with him in the battle. And even though he's facing an army, he's going to defeat them as if they were just one person, one man. Verse 17, then he said to him, If now I found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that is you who that it is you who talk with me. So um Gideon is asking for a sign, which as we read in the New Testament sort of gets condemned when we read about the the nativities of John the Baptist, of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist's father says, How can he know that um the things that he got, the message that the angel delivered him from him was true since he's an old man and his wife is old. And then he sort of got condemned for that and stricken with uh, not being able to speak. He was mute until John the Baptist was born. And then Mary, she um, wasn't sure how it could be that she would be able to give birth to a child since she was still a virgin, according to the narrative. Um, she wasn't as doubtful in her response um, as it seems John the Baptist's daddy was. Um, but she didn't get a curse either. But the same, the point being here is that neither one, both of them sort of were looking for a sign. And we're going to read about, there's another instance in the Old Testament where someone asks for a sign and it um, gets sort of a, a snappy response from the entity identified as the Lord then. Can't quite remember just right off hand who it was who did it. 
Um, but in this instance, he's asking for a sign. Let's see if it gets condemned like John the Baptist daddy did. <clears throat> Excuse me, verse 18. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon is asking for a sign to know that it's actually the Lord inter interacting with them. So let's us know he is having some sort of interaction with the divine, whether it's God Almighty or some other spirit or entity. He's having some sort of interaction. He's not sure if it's God Almighty or at least the Lord that he's worshiping or not. So he's asking to for the entity, the Lord, I'll just say since that's how it reads, uh, to wait around for him, <clears throat> excuse me, to sort of set up um, a way of means testing and finding out if it is actually the Lord or not. And in this instance, the Lord agrees to wait. Verse 19, so, so Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and he put the broth in a pot and he put and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. So Gideon asked the Lord to wait for him to um, prepare something, a meal. And now he's brought it out to the Lord, um, presumably to eat. Let's see, verse 20. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. So. Gideon went through the trouble of preparing the food, um, but it's the angel in this instance isn't eating it. He's told him to separate the different things he's gathered together for the offering and to pour out the broth. So the angel obviously didn't drink it. Um, verse 21, then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight so the broth went to the earth which makes me think of witchcraft since we read about how the earth yields crops by itself in the gospels and how um, the, um, the Lord himself doesn't in the parable that Jesus gives doesn't know um, what sort of crops it will bring forth and then we read previously how what we call witchcraft or Wicca, that religion, um, roots, voodoo, that sort of thing, was um, the practice magic um, previous to Judaism even being introduced into the Bible, into the narrative in the Bible. Um, that those sort of things were the way people practiced their religion and rituals um, and got results. They'd even get appearances according to the narrative from God Almighty just by doing different things like animal sacrifices um but this part about the rock burning up the food rather than an angel eating it um leads me to believe it's not i already don't believe it's god almighty it says it's the angel of the lord so uh, it's most almost certainly not god almighty but it also doesn't match the narrative we read previously in genesis when um the lord according to the narrative would um, at least on one occasion have a meal eat with the people um, I think it was Abraham and his wife where um, they shared a meal with the Lord and then we read later where um, one of the other forefathers actually physically wrestled with 
the Lord and even beat the Lord in a wrestling match. So it seems unlikely that that's God Almighty either, since in all these cases, they all disagree with what the New Testament says, that no one has seen God at any time, heard his voice, or seen his form. Um, so, as always, believe what you want to believe, but at the very least, you have to believe they're contradictory because they don't agree. But whatever the case may be, the offering was made, the food was devoured by fire out of a rock, and the broth poured to the earth. And then the angel descend, uh, I'm sorry, departed from um, Gideon's presence. Verse 22, now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. So now uh, it does seem to be talking about two different entities here, the angel of the Lord and the Lord God. <clears throat> Just for clarity, I'm going to see what they're translated from. So angel is still being translated from the word Malak instead of Elohim or Elohai. Eloi, however you pronounce it, and Lord, in all caps, is still being translated from the name Jehovah. But then right after that, where it says, Alas, Lord God, Lord, with just the capital L and the rest of it, lowercase, O-R-D, is translated from the name or word Adonai, which is slightly different than the word it was translated from previously in the same chapter. And then God is in all caps in this verse and it's translated from the name Jehovah so Lord and God in all caps seem to be translated from the same name Jehovah but Lord with just the capital L can be translated from different things different names different people um, an angel whether caps or not seems to change its um, what it's translated from also and as always believe what you want um, but at least you have to believe and see that there's inconsistencies and there may be you know reasonable explanations for it that are beyond my um, knowledge understanding I don't discount that possibility at all but at the very least they're inconsistent verse 23 then the Lord said to him peace be with you do not fear you shall not die so Gideon seems assured, or at least reassured, um, um, in his mission, because now he's seen the angel of the Lord, and he's saying he's seen the face of the Lord, uh, even face to face, the angel of the Lord. And then he's given the message that, you know, go in peace, basically, do not fear, you shall not die. Let him know he'll be victorious in the battle verse 24 so Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace to this day it is still an Ophrah of the Bezrites so in this case the Lord is peace is translated from the name Jehovah Shalom I'm sorry um, Jehovah it's it's in the blueletterbible.org website. It's being translated um, in peace or it's peace. It's You'll see the translation changes from what it's saying. The I guess the original manuscript actually said. And where it says the Lord is peace is sort of an English translation of the um, 
of the Hebrew translation of what the manuscript said. So I'm going to try and make it as simple as I can so that I can understand it myself. Um, I guess it does sort of make sense um, from the translation. So, okay, so the word Lord is all caps. It's being translated from the name Jehovah. And it's saying and called it Jehovah Shalom, sort of all one word. Um, I overlooked the Shalom part because it was all crammed together as one word. Um, to give one of the, I think there's seven or eight names or titles or powers being attributed to uh, the deity, the entity known as Jehovah in the Old Testament. If I remember right, it's um, there's Shalom, there's Nisi, there's Rofi, there's there's like seven or eight of them, and Shalom is just one of them, saying the Lord is peace, um, and that's what he's dedicating that altar that he built to it, and I'm not sure what kind of altar he could build just like that, and then name it. Uh, maybe it's just all stones. That seems to be um, a recurring theme also in the Old Testament. Whatever it is, he built one there and named it that, Jehovah Shalom, um, in dedicating it to the entity, the Lord, who appeared to him there. Verse 25, Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. So the people again had um, began taking up other religions as their means of worship. Uh, the Baals, the Ashtaroths, the Asherahs. And, and, and so they built altars to them also. And then it says the wooden image, it reminds me of like a totem pole. It's a phallic shaped symbol like the, the, um, the um, Washington Monument something tall and long and hard that makes you think of a penis um, that people will use to worship and it's dedicated to or at its essence it's patriarchy and it's um, deifying patriarchy and in this case the wooden image is translated from the word Asherah so it's um, a, fe a female goddess that um, the people were worshipping there um, but in the form of a wooden image so it's possible it's um and since he's saying tear it down cut it down that makes it sound like it's not some handheld uh idol or object like a crucifix you might hold in your hand it's something large like i said a totem pole or some sort of monument if you have to cut it down and it is beside the altar that they would use for worship so gideon's been given the order to tear all of that down Verse 26, and his own father, it's a place of worship that is Gideon's own father, had set up to worship these other foreign gods. Verse 26, and build an, build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement. And take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So he's being told to desecrate his father's um image of worship his um idols and then use them as uh fire for the offering that he's going to make to um the jehovah deity that he's following or getting the appearance from and that the people have been ordered to be obedient to since the whole exodus narrative 
uh, verse 27 so Gideon took 10 men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him but because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day he did it by night so even though he's been told he has the Lord on his side and he has at least according to the scriptures righteousness on his side because the people are only supposed to be worshiping the one Lord Jehovah uh, not any other Baals, Ashtoreths, Asherahs, or anything else. Even so, he's going to wait for the cover of night to do what he's been ordered to do. And even though it's his own father who has set up that uh, idol, um, and it's large enough that uh, it seems a lot of people were going there to worship it, just like you might go to a neighborhood church. They're going there for their worship. So he's been told to tear all of that down and to build an altar instead to Jehovah the Lord who's occurred again and again throughout the narrative to this point verse 28 and when the men of the city arose early in the morning there was the altar Baal torn down and the wooden image, wooden image that was beside it was cut down and the second bull was being offered on the altar which he had been which had been built so the bull was used to tear down the altar tear down the wooden image and then used for the an animal sacrifice for the new altar that's being set up for the people to worship verse 29 so they said to one another who has done this thing and when they had inquired and asked they said Gideon the son of Joash has done this thing so they're wondering who had the nerve to tear down their um um their uh, their idol and they found out Gideon verse 30 then the men of the city said to Joash Bring your, bring out your son that he may die because he's torn down the altar of Baal and because he's cut down the wooden image that was beside it. So the people are not pleased with their um, idol being torn down any more than someone would be pleased with their mosque being torn down, their church being torn down, their synagogue being torn down in modern times. It's the same thing for them. Their religious place of worship has been torn down and desecrated so they want the person who did it to die verse 31 but Joash said to all who stood against him would you plead for Baal would you have would you save him let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning if he is a god let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down well uh, that can be taken both ways so Gideon is saying if the image the God they serve is so powerful. Uh, what does he need them to fight on his behalf for? If he's pissed that his altar's been torn down, uh, torn down then um, why doesn't he do something about it himself? Why does he need a human hand to intercede for him? If he's so powerful, if he's the Lord, let him do it himself. And God here in this verse is translated from the word Elohim. Um, and God here is lowercase, but we've seen before, lowercase, in all lowercase, or even when the first letter is uppercase and rest is lowercase, it still translates from the word Elohim. But as we just read previously, when it's in all uppercase, God or the word Lord, it seems to be translated, at least in this verse, or chapter, from the, the name Jehovah. So again, if you can keep it straight in your own mind or make sense of it, God bless you. Um, 
but so I'm just reading it as it reads so we can get an understanding but the other thing to understand is well the same thing can be said for the Lord who sent him on the mission to tear down those altars and burn up the uh, wooden image why doesn't the Lord just do that the Lord's self if he's really worshiping God Almighty why doesn't God Almighty do it God's self why would God need a human hand to intercede and do it for him why or for God why in, in and on the same note why would God need them to fight wars at all? Why would God need people in modern times to carry out a death penalty? When we've read according to the Bible, but God forbade the death penalty from the start in Genesis, that that was a no-no, not allowed to be done. And we've seen when God wants to, God can open up the ground and swallow up people, or God can send fire from heaven and swallow up people, or, you know, destroy people, or... um all sorts of different plagues can be sent sending snakes even among people to bite and kill them so if god's able to do all those things when god is offended why does god need a human hand to intercede for god so the same argument that gideon is making against those idols can be made against the same god jehovah that he's there working on behalf of and to me that sort of inconsistency means that it's probably not God Almighty. It's almost certainly some other entity, deity, that the people are worshiping as their God, the same way people worship Baal as their God or any other religion as their God. doesn't mean it's God Almighty. It just means that's who the people are calling God or their Lord throughout the Bible and besides it, beyond it. Um, but that's his argument. He's saying he does, if, God, if your God is so mighty, he doesn't need you to get revenge for him. God could do it himself if you're actually serving God. Verse 32, therefore on that day he called him, therefore on that day he called him Jeroboam, saying, let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. So he's saying his name is being called, sort of the nickname, Jeroboam, um, translates, which translates to Baal, let Baal plead or Baal or Baal, however you want to pronounce it. Um, saying uh, that's what this translated Jeroboam translates to let Baal plead in other words let the Lord you're uh, worshiping or are so angry about uh, plead for himself take up his own cause get revenge for himself why does he need a human hand to do it um, but again that can be said about all these different um, battles and wars and uh, vengeances um, that the people are being told to do holy wars in other words in plain English on behalf of God, when if God is Almighty, which I believe God Almighty is, but clearly the images, the entities they're worshiping, is not. Otherwise, why wouldn't the Lord handle it, the Lord's self? Um, so that's what his argument is to them when they've gone out against him, looking to hunt his head for what he did to their altars. Verse 33. Then all the Midianites and Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together. And they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. So all those different nations, different peoples, groups of peoples, have now gathered again uh, and crossed over the Jordan and encamped in the valley there. Let's see what for. Verse 34. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, then he blew the trumpet, and the Abizrites gathered behind him. So um, it seems like the battle lines are being drawn. Um, those nations against Gideon and um, 
and um, the people who are on his side. And here, Lord is being translated still from the name Jehovah. Um, I thought there was one other thing we were going to look there. And spirit from the, it's capitalized to, um, it seems, be talking about the Holy Spirit. But um, in this case, I guess it would be the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of Jehovah that um, is being referred to here. Uh, and it's translated from the name or word Ruha or Rua. Um, so anyway, the battle is set up now. Verse 35, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. So he's gathering his forces from among the different uh, tribes for the battle. Verse 36, so Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So now it's yet again a challenge I remember the other time, sort of a challenge or testing of the Lord. It's when um, Jesus was in the wilderness um, before his ministry began, you know, full, full, in full, full, in earnest. He had the 40 days in the wilderness and the devil tempt, tried to tempt him, as it's written, saying, um, turn the bread, turn the rocks into bread, jump off the cliff, you know, play crazy and prove your strength, prove your divinity. And yet, um, and the, Jesus struck that down three different times. But here, Gideon, at least once, now twice, maybe even three times now, is asking for um, proof, for asking for evidence, asking for the Lord, if you're going to believe this is the Lord, and again, I'm just going to say it's the Lord since that's how it reads, asking the Lord for different signs to affirm his faith that um, the Lord is on his side. And in this instance, God is again being translated from the word Elohim. Um, but just before the word God, uh, it says, well, that's sort of a different word. It's the same E-L, but it has sort of an accent mark. And an, uh, an ast uh, it's not the same as the entity L, like um, the Lord has been translated from before that the people worship. But instead, it's just the, it looks like it's the preposition word. Um, the Lord, or if that's a preposition, um, so anyway, he's um, he's basically coming up with another challenge for the Lord, saying, If the Lord will save him, as he's been told, as he's been assured, so now he's asking for blessed assurance, like the hymn says, verse 37 Look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor, if there is dew on the fleece only. And is and it is. I'm going to read this one again. Verse 37. Look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So he's asking for a sign from the Lord that if he lays that fleece, and fleece is basically what you use to, uh, you know, make a sweater out of. It's wool. It's um. Yeah, it's basically what you used to make the sweaters, a piece of fabric, a piece of cloth. He's saying he's going to lay a piece of cloth there on the threshing floor. And he wants a supernatural sign that if um, the fleece, when he comes back to it, is wet, but all the ground around it is dry, then he'll know that the sign is true 
and that the message he's been given is going to stand. Verse 38, and it was so, when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. So he got the miraculous sign he was looking for. The fleece was soaking wet and the ground was dry around it. Um, verse 39, then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground, let there be dew. So now he's getting to um, ask for a sign from the Lord yet again in this same chapter. Um, a miraculous sign from heaven. Sort of like how the devil asked for signs in the wilderness and how others have asked for signs and got shot down and rebuked for asking for those signs. In this instance, Gideon isn't getting rebuked for it. Instead, he got the sign he asked for requested that he requested granted. Um, he got the fleece to be soaking wet and the ground bone dry. So his faith, his request was affirmed without consequence. And now um, he's asked for uh, yet again for another sign, this time for the fleece, the clothing, the cloth, just the fabric to stay dry but then all the ground to be wet instead. I guess he's just testing to see if maybe it's just his imagination or maybe someone's playing a trick. If some human hand has had a part in the whole thing, he's asking for reassurance to affirm his faith. Something that again, gets condemned throughout other parts of the Bible where you're supposed to just walk by faith. You're supposed to just believe. You shouldn't need a sign and how dare you ask for a sign from the Lord. Um, when you're just supposed to have faith, that's not happening with him. He's getting to ask for signs and getting them granted. Verse 40, and God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. So uh, yet again, he got his request granted just like that, where he asked God, which is being translated from the word Elohim in this verse, um, to show up for him yet again and grant his request, um, letting the fabric, the textile, the cloth, the fleece be completely dry this time and instead letting all the ground around it be um, soaking wet or you know full of dew. Um, so he got his request granted again even though that gets condemned in other parts of the Bible. Yet another inconsistency which leads me to believe even though he may be interacting with the supernatural it almost certainly is not God Almighty because why would God Almighty be that inconsistent? If people were before condemned before for asking for a sign and not having faith, why in the world is not is Gideon not being uh, condemned for asking for a sign from heaven and um, instead just letting it be granted without even having his uh, lack of uh, full faith even questioned or rebuked? Um, but that's just what I believe, and it's. I believe that because it's how it reads. But as always, believe what you want. Our reading, however, will end here because that's the end of the chapter. That was the last verse. As always, thank you for reading along with me. I hope the Naked Truth is a blessing for you and that you'll join me again. I love you and I'll see you next time. God bless you. Peace be with you.